Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. After a brief summer break, I am thrilled to return to the podcast and all of you listening in. We look forward to a new academic year and new episodes on our students, faculty, staff, and social justice legacy. Today, Professor John Fountain joins the podcast to talk about the Unforgotten 51 Project and his next endeavor, a year overseas in Ghana, as a Fulbright scholar. WGN-TV was one of the first to pick up the story, then People Magazine, Oxygen, and Block Club Chicago. But the reporting started with Professor John Fountain and a passionate group of Roosevelt University students. John's journalism class accepted the weighty project of covering 51 women murdered in Chicago since 2001, most of them African-American. For John and his students, the women were more than statistics. They were complex human beings, family members, whose stories deserve to be told so that they are not forgotten. Please enjoy our conversation. Well, John, Professor Fountain, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what led you to become a professor at Roosevelt University. Well, um, someone said life is what happens when you make other plans. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think that sometimes people mean that in a bad way, but I think that can be taken in a good way, uh, particularly with my experience at Roosevelt University. I've been a professor, it seems like, uh, for now about uh, 17 years. And I was a journalist before getting into uh, getting into teaching. And my last uh, job was as a national correspondent at the New York Times, where I covered the Midwest, which was really great for me as an honor to come back home to Chicago, my kind of town, where I grew up on the west side of Chicago, in a place that is about a 15 minutes drive from Roosevelt University but in some ways is a whole world away. And I got into journalism and I've been a journalist now for more than 30 years because I wanted to make a difference. I believe in the power of journalism and the power of writing and in this call to afflict the the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted, to be a voice for the voiceless, which happens to be the fall in line with the social justice mantra at Roosevelt University. And I'm not just saying that, it is, it, is, it is what we're about. And if that is what we are about as a university, and that is what my heart and soul and passion as a journalist is about, I think they merge as a professor. And especially yeah. being at a place where we are at an urban center, a grand city, uh, one of the grandest cities in the world, that is a microcosm for just about anything you want to pursue. 
in terms of journalism. So it's a great place, and it was just. Uh, and here you are. You know, before we get to a specific topic, which would be you and your students and the unforgotten 51 women, I want to talk a little bit about the role of journalism in our society, in our democracy, and get your views on that, especially in the past four years, during the reign of uh, Trump, (laughs) uh, and the crucial role that journalism and journalists specifically played in preserving our democracy. Just give me your views on that. Well, in my view, it just doesn't come, doesn't just come from me, but from my training in undergrad and graduate school to become a journalist. And I tell my students, we talk about the principles of journalism, that a journalist's first obligation is to the truth. Our first loyalty is to the readers. That journalism is a discipline of the verification of fact. And that journalism is absolutely essential to democracy that we serve as gatekeepers between the government and and the uh, citizenry. And it is so important for us as journalists to remember what our role and what our goals are. It isn't to make money, it is to make a difference. And so that is critical. And I, I remember when someone said to me some years ago upon the, uh, the launch of the Trump presidency that Trump had apparently declared war against the press I said, that's a war he's going to lose because, <laughs> because someone said to me in, in this way many years ago, never mess with anyone who has more ink than you do. <laughs> and the New York Times has ink and ink and ink, and they can just keep on writing. And I also know, having been a reporter at the New York Times, having been a reporter at the Washington Post and Chicago Tribune and other newspapers, that as journalists, none of us got into this business because we wanted to make money. We got in it because we wanted to make a difference. And so what I've seen in these past uh, four or five years has been certainly an attack against journalism. You know, this idea of fake news and that you can't trust journalists. Um, But I've also seen a resurgence of wonderful journalism that has been fact-checked and corroborated. Have we made mistakes? Yes. But I think we've done our jobs. And I think the students, the future journalists who were watching on the sidelines were inspired um, by what they saw. No industry is perfect. But journalism every day seeks to get it right. And we do something that not everyone has to do. When we do our jobs in daily journalism, our work is held up every day to public scrutiny. Well, you know, uh, as you said, when I look back at uh, the track record of dictators all over the world, yes. number one attack is first, the press is the enemy. Number one. Yes. Then they say the judiciary is the enemy. Number two, (laughs) then the legislature is the enemy. Number three, once you have taken care of those three, there is nothing else left. Exactly. You know, he weakened the judiciary, he weakened the legislature significantly, and really the only thing that uh, stood in front of him was the ink 
of journalists yes. and the 30,000 fact-checking of his errors and half-truths and pure lies. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, we can talk for hours on this. <laughs> yes, Let's come back to the mission of Roosevelt University, as you said, social justice, and specifically your students. And this amazing, amazing, amazing project that you got them involved in, the Unforgotten 51 Women. So please tell us about that and how your journalism students got involved in this endeavor. It would be a pleasure. When I started thinking about a, a subject for our capstone journalism course, uh, it, it has to be a subject that has some degree of heft to it so that the student reporting team can wrap their arms around it, take off various segments of it, and explore and uh, do a good job. So one of the subjects that had come to mind was this case of 51 murdered mostly African-American women since 2001 in Chicago. Work had been done by the Murder Accountability Project in Alexandria, Virginia. And the gentleman who started the uh, Murder Accountability Project, Thomas Hargrove, he said, look, this is not conjecture on my part. I, I created this algorithm. I simply input data. And here's what it says. It says that there is at least one person killing these women in the city of Chicago. So th that sounded like a, a good potential story. But then I began to look at, because I was really interested in, in who these women were. As a storyteller, it has been always my goal to seek to humanize the story. And as I began to look for stories, I saw that CBS had done a story. There were a couple of others who had done stories. But I came away after reading those stories or seeing the broadcast reports, still wondering, who were these women? What were they beyond their names? Who were they beyond this categorization that they were prostitutes and street workers and drug addicts? And so I couldn't find very much. So I propose to our students that we do what I call, one of my colleagues calls sociological investigative journalism. Sounds really, really fancy. But what it means is simply to get close enough to get the real story. Yeah. And in our case, we just wanted to humanize these women, to find out who they were. Because if we humanize a story, if we write the stories portray them the truth in such a way that anybody can see their humanity and ultimately see themselves, then it leaves a lasting impression. It stands a possibility of making a difference. The last thing I'll say about that is I was quite honestly a little worried about this subject because it is, it's a little grisly. It's a little gruesome especially when you get into some of the details. And so I, I, I was worried that it, it might be too heavy for our students. And I shouldn't have been worried because when I proposed the idea, they immediately jumped on it. They were excited about the possibility of exploring the story and bringing some humanity to as many of these women as they could. Yeah. Uh, again, kudos to you for even thinking about this. When we talk about murder, especially in Chicago, it's just a statistic. Today, four more people were shot by 
etc., etc. Rarely, if ever, we hear about their aunts and uncles and parents and children and ancestors and brothers and siblings. And especially in this case, these women were murdered a long time ago. Nobody chronicled the family unit that was affected and impacted forever because of the loss of that woman. Was it an aunt, a sister, a mother? And then preparing your students to go in and do, you know, these sensitive interviews yes. to bring back some of the trauma that people had faced, but also at the same time bringing back to life. Yes. Yes. their story. So how did you prepare your students for these sensitive topics? Well, <laughs> my, my job was, was rather easy compared to their job in the sense yeah. that we talked about being sensitive and we talked, I talked a lot about being human. Mm -hmm. Imagine this is your aunt or your family member that you're going to talk to and treat them with dignity and with respect. And one of the first things that we do is offer our condolences to the family. And, um, and we mean it sincerely. And then we have to ask probably the hardest question, which is, what, will, they, will they talk to us? And then we have to give them a reason to talk to us. And, and quite frankly, there was the folks that we contacted some of them initially did not want to talk to the students because in some cases they were still hurt and mm -hmm. angry that their loved ones have been categorized as street sex workers or as yeah. um, drug addicts. And they felt in some ways that they had been brutalized or traumatized twice, once by the killer and the other by the media, by the reporters they had spoken with before. And so one of the things I told students in preparation was to make sure you explain to them that we want to tell the world who their loved one was. Mm -hmm. We want to humanize the story. We want you to tell us about the woman, about the sister, as you say, about the aunt or the daughter, the mother that you miss. And it was incredible in terms of the response that students got who were able to connect with people. And the reason they ultimately said they chose to speak with us, with our team, was because we said we wanted to tell their story. Wow. Uh, you know, obviously, there is one side of the story, which is the families talking about their lost loved one. Yes. Yeah, that's what your students chronicle. Well, tell me about the learning of your students and their reactions to these stories and how they grew and learned as, as a journalist. It was uh, quite honestly phenomenal. And, and no one has to, listening to, to us has to take our word for it. They can go to unforgotten.51.com and listen mm -hmm. to some of the podcasts straight from the horse's mouth, from the students themselves who were overwhelmed and who grew in terms of their humanity, who grew in terms of their ability to report and their willingness to report 
and to dig, to seek, to corroborate information, to get some information from loved ones, and to understand this was a loved one speaking, and, and having to go back and look at police records and to talk with police and interview them. And also, I think it was the, they grew in the sense of their understanding of the power of journalism, of the power of their pen, of the power that lies within them to make a difference as an individual. And sometimes, you know, people talk about change and they mean this vast sea of change, changing the world. I'm convinced that we change the world in journalism, one pen, one story. In our case, one student at a time. And I think they learned that lesson. Oh, absolutely. One student at a time, one story at a time. Yes. And then talk a little bit about the other side of the impact that you think bringing to light the stories of these women have had on the overall investigations and the family lives and just, just the whole bigger story of the 51 combined. How has that changed from your perspective? I think it has changed in the sense that right now, first of all, we coined the phrase unforgotten 51. Mm -hmm. So there was no humanity in terms of the collection of these women. They were just dead women murdered by a serial killer in Chicago. Now there is, if someone Googles 51 women in Chicago murdered, they will come up most likely with the project that our students have done. And I'm not bragging about that, only in the sense that we accomplished something that we, even more than we set out to do. We wanted to humanize them. And I think, you know, from news stations like WGN to the World Journalism, a Global Investigative Journalism Network to the Columbia Journalism Review, and other news organizations took note of the work of our students and uh, actually wrote stories and published stories about what we were doing. And even within the community, grassroots organizations have been in contact with us and quite frequently refer to the work that we've done. Currently, uh, WVON Radio is launching a series about missing and murdered Black women in Chicago and beyond, in which uh, I interviewed with them uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and so they are very aware of the work that we've done. We are also in the future going to be working with the Cook County Sheriff's Office, which has launched a new project on missing women in Chicago. And uh, so I think the sum of, of it is I would say that we have created a sense of awareness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think I happen to have a note from someone who contacted me recently about um, about the 51, and I, and I didn't know this person. If I could, I'd like to just read some of this. This is a short note. Whoa. She writes, hi, Professor Fountain. I've been reading into my mother's case online. Lately, I've seen these 51 women being brought up everywhere on social media where people write posts on Facebook, TikTok videos, and Twitter. I just wanted to say thank you for bringing this to light. Since my mother was murdered in 2003, I haven't seen anyone talk about this serial killer. The detectives are no help either. But now that many people are recently publishing articles about it, I see more traction. Thank you for bringing a little bit of hope. 
So I don't take credit for that. That's our students. And it was them rolling up their sleeves and believing in this project enough to put their all in it and make a difference. Well, I think, Professor Fountain, you know, what you do and what universities do obviously teach the craft of journalism to your students and you have taught them. You know, my prediction for these students who are involved in these projects and similar projects is that no matter what they do in their lives, they will always do something that is significant. Yes. I agree. Not that they have learned how they can impact the lives of people around them and tell a story that will have a lasting impact. You know, this wasn't the first time that your students took on, you know, a breaking news, if you will, a non-breaking news, perhaps. But, you know, talk to me a little bit about going to Michigan, you know, Flint, Michigan, and the lead uh, water and the lead in the water, the lead pipes and so forth. So tell me a little bit about that as well. Well, we were in another convergence project in in a journalism class, and we were talking about what was going on in Flint, Michigan, in terms mm-hmm. of the water crisis. At the height of the water crisis, things haven't, still haven't been completely resolved. And um, students began to inquire. <laughs> they asked me, quite frankly, what's the possibility that we could go to Flint, Michigan and report? <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, the university worked it out, and we got on a chartered bus, and we went to Flint. We did a lot of ground reporting in the weeks beforehand, and we hit the ground running. As a matter of fact, when we got off the bus, CNN was there, and uh, folks were dispensing water to a long line of people who were lined up to get drinking water. And the students, even in that case, I saw students grow by leaps and bounds in just a single weekend. In terms of hitting the ground, you saw at first they were a little hesitant to talk to people. But by the time we were done, they had been in people's homes, interviewing them, people who were suffering the effects of lead poisoning. They had gone to church, services that some of them had never been into, a Black Baptist church, and seen the fiery goings-on that happened. And and it was was life-changing. And it just so happened to be the weekend of the uh, Democratic... uh, national, uh, the presidential debate. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we all got uh, credentialed to go into the, um, to cover that, to go into the press center. So that was a, an incredible experience. But our students have, they, they've gotten on a bus on the south side of Chicago with the faith community of St. Sabina, taking a 12-hour journey to Washington, D.C. to cover the march on gun, to end gun violence. And um, I take them to places like Breakthrough Urban Ministries or to Londell Christian Community Center or to other places on the other side of the tracks in Chicago so that they can see and be, become sensitized to issues that sometimes are so far beyond their daily world. And my hope is that you know, if we are going to change journalism, if we are going to change the world, we have got to begin to produce the kinds of journalists who, number one, have skills, but who also have the heart for telling stories that make a difference. And our students do that. 
Yeah, and you know, this is absolutely in line with the social justice mission of the university, Roosevelt University, and making sure our students grow and learn and apply their craft. To me, this is preservation of our democracy, going back to where we started, as far as fake news and so forth, that they learn how to impact our democracy in a positive way by telling the stories that are worth telling. Yes. That are not a waste of ink. Yes. That they are worth telling. Now, you're also embarking on a Fulbright scholarships to Ghana uh, pretty soon. Uh, so tell us more about this exciting project. Well, I am indeed hoping, you know, there's so many things that are going on in the world today. You just, you just, if you wake up every morning, you're just happy to be alive and in a beautiful day. <laughs> But I am planning to go to Ghana and the project as a Fulbright scholar and the project that I'm researching is called Africa Calling, Portraits of Black Americans Drawn to the Motherland. And Mm -hmm. my research project is a qualitative research study study that looks at the number of African Americans who over the last, uh, at least the last 10 years, have uh, are now living as expatriates in Ghana, why they're doing it. Part of it is that some of them say they seek uh, solace and uh, a different life from the racism that they say they experience in America on a daily basis. And um, and so I'm, I'm, I want to go and talk to those people, but also to explore what life is like in Ghana. So I, I plan to do some, uh, take advantage of being present on the continent and go to some other African nations and to do ultimately produce a a series of mini documentaries and also uh, narratives and ultimately a a book. I'm going to keep a a rolling, uh, a live, uh, a podcast, uh, I should say a a blog of my my travels and my encounters while I'm there. Well, you know, you've been writing about Ghana in your weekly column as well. Yeah, you know, I will look forward to you talking about the favorite places and the favorite food and the favorite families <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the people and the culture. Really, yes. ultimately, comes down to culture. Yes, uh, of where you visit, and you know, don't even think about staying in Ghana. <laughs> Expatriate. Uh, because, because then we will have a campus, Roosevelt University campus in Ghana for journalism. Well, we need you back here. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what you might bring of uh, that experience and that culture to your students back in Chicago. Well, one of the things that I failed to mention in, in saying uh, talking about my research project is I will also be teaching journalism at the University of Ghana in Accra. And wow. um, so I'm looking in that experience to have an exchange with the students to learn from them, to explore social justice stories and what they look like there and doing some comparison. But quite honestly, I'm looking for every opportunity to bring back connections to Roosevelt University, to our students, mm-hmm. whether that be some sort of student collaboration between students in Ghana and students in Roosevelt, conversations, 
I'm also going to bring back a collection of my experiences, both in photograph and podcasts and videos. And just, um, you know, there's nothing like traveling abroad, as you know, that expands you. And, and so I'm just, I'm looking to go and explore, to fill my cup and to come back and to share some of that with the Roosevelt University community. Yeah, and you know, to me, uh, when we travel, we expand our mind. It's the cultural mindset of my culture is just one culture. It's not better than your culture, whatever I'm visiting, and being able to step back and say, Ghana's culture and this group and that village and this city and this group of people and university professors are just as legitimate and good and phenomenal as my culture, whether I was born and lived in Chicago or not. So expanding the mind that way, to me, is always the best part of traveling abroad and appreciating other people's culture, music, food, family relationships, and all that. Yes. Well, you know, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I could talk to you for another three hours, but we will have more opportunities to chat on this and similar items. But I'm so grateful for you to be at Roosevelt University. Thank you. And to do what you do day in and day out for the benefit of our students and the benefit of our democracy. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be at Roosevelt University. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.